The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's my privilege to open the scriptures with you this morning and work our way through a little bit more of a, a technical passage, something that we're going to have to put our thinking caps on for. Um, so I'm excited to do that with you, and I trust the Lord that there will be fruit as a result of our time in the scriptures today. The title of the message today is Victory in Jesus, and you know, when I, when I was thinking about this, uh, I, I don't know if you grew up in a church that sang hymns, but there's an old hymn called Victory in Jesus, and when I was growing up, there was this, uh, this guy, Lloyd Thogmartin, who was kind of a bluesy player. And Victory in Jesus was a traditional hymn that had kind of a somber tone. And he just thought that, that was wrong, you know. Just uh, so wrong to sing Victory in Jesus like it's a, a funeral dirge. And so he changed it to sort of a bluesy, rhythm-based song that thumped. And I just remember as a kid, you know, people clapping and shouting, singing, Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. And in the back of my mind as I went through this passage, that is the image that I hold. What a thing to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus. The big idea from today's sermon is that Jesus is a superior messenger with a superior message who secures a superior victory. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open up the scriptures today, we are keenly aware of the fact that we do not see reality as it is. The truth of the matter is, Lord, is that our experience of the world is so dominating in our hearts and minds most of the time. And we need to have our eyes drawn to how great you are, how amazing the message of the gospel is, and we need to be drawn beyond this life into eternity to see the plans that you have laid for us, that we might find hope in the present days. So God, awaken our hearts by your spirit. Give us an ear for your truth, not to gather facts and information, but to find our hearts resting in its reality. We commit this time to you, Lord. Shepherd your people through your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Let's read verses 5 through 9 together. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For those of you who like to take notes, our outline is fairly simple. Verses 5 through 8a, man's role in God's rule. Man's role in God's rule. Verse 8, part B, we live in the already, not yet. We live in the already, not yet. And then finally, verse 9, Christ's death brought life. Christ's death brought life. There are three movements in the text that we'll be paying attention to. Man's role in God's rule, the fact that we live in the already, not yet, and the fact that Christ's death brought life. Now, in order to properly understand this passage, we're going to have to do a little thinking and word work together. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a body of believers that are bright, that are capable of doing some deeper level thinking about the Bible. And I'm confident that our time will be fruitful as we grow our understanding of reality as the Bible presents it. And for some of you, what we talk about today will be some new territory. Uh, But I think it will be useful in understanding the Bible and how it intersects with our modern view of the world, how they are different from one another. So let's, let's dive in to the mind and the world and the world of the Bible. We're going to start our time today by being reminded of the context from, uh, of verses 5 through 9 from chapter 1. Now, in chapter 1, the author makes the case that Jesus is the greatest messenger that God has ever sent and that he is bringing the greatest message that has ever been given. He then goes on to use various Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God who righteously rules over all of creation for all of eternity. And then he further proves that the angels are commanded to worship the Son, the Son of God, and that the world that Jesus created will ultimately be brought to a place of surrender to his rule as the creator king. Now by the time we exit chapter 1, there is a statement made that he is about to expand on in our section today. And that statement is found in verse 14. He's quoting uh, in our passage today from Psalm 8, but he's expanding upon a, a statement that he made in verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14, it says... Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That is, the angels. They've been sent out from God to serve those who will inherit salvation. Now, this is a shocker. The shocker is that angels are also used by God to serve and help those who will inherit salvation through Christ. 
And we're going to talk more about this through our time today in verses 5 through 9. But, but after verse 14 comes then this warning in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, where he starts out and says, therefore, if, if uh, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The idea of this, therefore, is that if God judges his people in the Old Testament over their failure to listen to the messenger and the message that they brought, the messenger being angels, the message being the Old Covenant, we should pay much more attention to Jesus, the divine messenger, and his message, the gospel, the New Covenant. Now the author is going to loop back around and then pick up again on verse 14 where we take our first glance in our outline at man's role in God's rule. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are now speaking. To understand why this is such a shocking verse you have to understand a little bit about how they understood the world that they lived in. This is not something we hear about a ton, but we're forced to confront these truths as we attempt to deal accurately with these scriptures. The worldview in the Bible may be different from what you and I have been taught. So the Bible opens with the story of God as the creator of everything. And as creator, there is a clear distinction between him and the creation that he rules. God is the sovereign ruler over both the heavens and the earth. And the entirety of those two realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, constitute the kingdom of God. But what God does is is very interesting. He shares his rule. Now this is not because God is tired it's not like there's too much for God to do. He can't manage it on his own, and so he has to hire people to do things or hire angels or spiritual beings to do things. Rather, he seems to find joy in watching his creatures share in the management of what he's created. And as humans tried to understand God and the management of what he's created uh, and his interaction with creation, the difference between heaven and earth were a helpful way of making sense of it all. The earth is the place that humanity and physical creation existed, and the heavens, or the skies, were the place that humans could not go. The heavens represented a, a place that humans were not permitted, the realm, the abode of God. The heavens were distinct from the earth because they were unreachable. They were a great way for humans in the ancient world to understand the dwelling place of God, this unreachable place from which he rules the universe. And so in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when God finishes his earthly creation, he makes man, and then he delegates authority to express his rule on his behalf on the earth in physical creation through man. And this is often referred to uh, as the cultural mandate, the, the authority that God gives to man to rule the earth. 
Now in the heavens, there were also beings which God had delegated authority as well. And there are a whole host of creatures that are part of his rule in the heavens. There are angels, cherubim, seraphim, and then this strange group of creatures called the divine council, which operates like God's staff team. Now cherubim are often pictured as sort of chimera beasts. They often have like the the head of a bull and then a a, a body with wings on it and they fly around. They're, They're sort of fantastical looking. But they acted like guardians. Remember, it's the cherubim who are guarding the Ark of the Covenant. It is the cherubim that are sewn into the veil of the temple. It is the cherubim that that guard the tree of life. And so that's the cherubim. And then angels are like servants and messengers. And often in the Bible, they are mistaken for humans because they look like humans in appearance. And then there's this group called the Divine Council, and it's it's pictured as a group of spiritual beings that God sometimes involves in the process of making decisions on earth. Now, most of the time, these heavenly creatures are pictured as taking counsel together to make decisions along with Yahweh, who ultimately has the final say. Though he's fully capable of making these decisions without him, Without them, he finds joy in the sharing. He finds joy in the taking counsel together. Now, you see this most clearly in, in places like Job chapter 1, where it says, Now, on uh, one day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them, the Lord said to the Satan, From where do you come? And then the Satan answered the Lord from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. Or places like Psalm 82, verse 1. God takes his stand in the divine council, in the midst of Elohim. He renders justice. Now there's too much to cover here, but there's an important piece that you need to understand in order for this passage in Hebrews to make sense in its fullness. Just like God delegated authority to mankind to rule the earth, he delegates authority in the spiritual realm to spiritual beings. But here is where the story gets really messy. What ends up happening is that there are a series of rebellions that end up having an effect on the whole of God's kingdom, the whole of creation. They end up having an effect both in the heavens and on the earth, the two realms of God's rule. These three rebellions are often referred to as the garden, the flood, and the tower of Babel. Now, each of these rebellions end with a judgment from God that has both earthly and heavenly or spiritual consequences. These are judgments on humans and on spiritual rebels that are, in effect, trying to establish a kingdom of their own without God as the king. And as a result, 
Mankind is stripped of their right to share the rule of God. They are banished from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They are destroyed with the flood. And eventually, at the Tower of Babel, they are divided by language barriers. And mankind is made lower than the angels. And furthermore, at the Tower of Babel, if you could sort of peel back and see in the heavenly realm, there is another reality taking place as well. God did not just divide the nations from themselves through mixing languages, but God also delegated spiritual beings to rule over the earth. Now, this pops up in various places. It's alluded to in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 16 to 20. It also comes up more clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. Let me, let me read to you what it says there. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And that phrase, sons of God, is benai Elohim. That's a reference to this group of the divine council. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. And he separates out Israel for himself. So these various nations also are being ruled over by these spiritual entities. Now, the deal is, though, these spiritual entities aren't faithful in their task. In some passages, God proclaims judgment on these spiritual beings for their oppression of humanity and their lack of care for the poor. In other words... These spiritual beings were not ruling the nations well, nor representing Yahweh well. And so, for example, in Psalm 82, verses 1 to 8, there is a judgment pronounced upon these spiritual entities. Let me read to you Psalm 82, verses 1 through 8. God has taken counsel in his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods, the word gods there is Elohim, which is a category title, a category title for these spiritual beings. So in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And this is what he says to them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They neither have knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then Yahweh says to them, I said you are gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalmist kicks in and says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here's, here's the idea. These spiritual entities ruling over the nations that have been divided. God has separated Israel for himself. And now these spiritual entities are not ruling well. 
people, humans, in these other nations are being spiritually oppressed and used. So God pronounces judgment upon this group of spiritual entities. Now, if this is an area of interest to you, to understand this more fully, I want to recommend a, a, a video series that will be really, really helpful to you. How many of you guys are familiar with the Bible Project? You've seen sort of cartoon, infographic style videos. There is a series on the Bible Project called Spiritual Beings. It's, a, I think, a five-video series, totally worth your time. Each of them runs about five to six minutes. It will help you to understand sort of the nature of these spiritual beings and how they operate within the world. But here's what I want you to see. Meanwhile, even though these these spiritual beings are not ruling well and God is going to judge them, there are promises that mankind will be restored to their former privilege and that they will once again share the rule of God. Not just on earth, but in the heavens as well. And the descriptions of man's future role in God's rule comes up in various places throughout the Old Testament. One of the clearest is from Daniel chapter 7, where in Daniel 7 verses 21 to 22, Daniel is having a vision of all these coming kingdoms and the spiritual entities that are ruling them and them making war with the kingdom of God, with the people who are under God's rule, the humans under God's rule. And then he says, he, or he prophesied that at the end of the age that there would be a final rebellion where the spiritual rulers who use humans to do their bidding are finally defeated and God rules his kingdom. His rule is finally fully established. But I want you to notice how Daniel the prophet describes it. He says in verses 21 through 22 of chapter 7, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days, that is Jesus, came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So here in Daniel, you have the prophet looking forward to a time when God will share his rule and exercise his reign with humans over the entire kingdom of God, both in heaven and on earth. Now this is why Paul would write to the Corinthian believers to encourage them and tell them, hey, listen, you guys don't have to go to court. You can settle disputes yourself. You can settle them in-house in the church rather than resorting to lawsuits. To make his point to the Corinthian church, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then in matters pertaining to this life? So Paul assumes that his audience already knows God's plan to use humans to carry out his rule in the fulfilled kingdom of God. 
And here, in our passage, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author assumes this common worldview for his audience as well. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected to the world to come, of which we are now speaking. In other words, don't you know in the end, you guys are exalting angels, but don't you know in the end, mankind will be the instrument that God uses They will be the ones to whom God delegates his authority. Who is it that will be used to carry out the rule of God in the new heavens and the new earth? It is humans. Those who have trusted in the king and embraced his authority in their lives. They are the ones that God has declared will reign with him in the fulfilled kingdom of God. Now, to strengthen this argument... The author quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. I love what Tom Schreiner points out from this passage. He says, notice that the author is not as much concerned uh, about who the human author is as much as he is about the divine author of this psalm. And that's why he starts with this phrase in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. In other words, I'm not going to give you the address or the author, but I know that this is coming from God. And then he quotes the psalm. He gives the words of the psalmist. What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This psalm strengthens the argument by showing that the psalmist prophesied of a time when God would use the weak things of the world to confound the strong. God's future plan is to take the sons of Adam, humans, from their humble estate and use them to rule in his future kingdom when it comes in fullness. And for a little while, humanity has been made lower than the angels, but a day is coming when they will be crowned with glory and honor and everything will be placed in subjection under human feet. You know, if you were to read the psalm in its entirety, the psalmist is marveling that with the size of the heavens and the earth, humans, the psalmist says, are like babies. They're like infants in creation. They're like these little tiny creatures. They're a speck on the planet, a speck in the universe. They're so small and insignificant. And then it blows his mind that God would choose to use the simplest of creatures to rule his amazing and complex creation. So so here's, here's the idea from point one. Man's role in God's rule is to share his authority in the coming age. Now, as soon as the author says this, it becomes obvious that this has not happened yet. We don't see mankind exalted to this place of delegated authority yet. And because the author carries such a high view of Scripture and the specific wording that is used, he makes this very careful observation about what Psalm 8 actually says. And he's doing this to prove that the kingdom has been inaugurated but has not yet been consummated. To his his audience and to us, 
the author is proving that this prophecy has already begun to be fulfilled. We are presently already living in the already, not yet, of God's future and coming kingdom. So the second half of verse 8 tells us that we live in the already, not yet. And the author keys in here on one word from Psalm 8. The word is everything. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. In, in, in other words, everything included in the everything from the psalm must be the angels as well. And this again confirms the author's thinking about the coming kingdom of God. And then he makes this observation. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is, to mankind. The him referred to here in verse 8 is likely referring to the sons of Adam or humanity that are being described in Psalm 8 as the surprise recipients of, the author of authority from God to rule. And so the author is saying that at the present time, we don't see humanity sharing the rule and reign of God in the way that God promised that this would happen. But it is a guarantee that everything will be subjected to God's delegated authority through humans in the future. So right now, we are living in the already, not yet, of the reality of the kingdom. Let's pause for just a moment to let some of this truth sink in. You see, for the original audience and for us, knowing that we live in the already, not yet, gives us, first of all, a hope for tomorrow, and second of all, a mission for today. Living in the already, not yet, gives us a hope for tomorrow and a mission for today. What do we see at the present moment? Not everything is submitting to the rule of God. Don't, don't you feel that down to the core? I don't know about you guys, but in the last probably four years, I can't tell you how many times I've looked out and I'm like, what is going on in the world? Has everybody lost their minds? What is happening? The world is such a broken place. There's, there is still a cosmic and spiritual rebellion happening at the same time that there is an earthly and human rebellion. And those who are part of the kingdom of God, living under his rule, are like those who are living from the perspective of a future kingdom in the present unresolved world. We're, we're like citizens of the New Jerusalem in the presence of Babylon. Or better yet, we function like ambassadors living in an embassy in an evil and hostile country. We know that there's a day coming where our kingdom will take over and the, will take over the world that we now inhabit. So no matter how crazy the world gets, we have a hope for what is coming. What does that mean? It means we don't need to fear when it feels like the world around us is in spiritual, moral, or political decay. Why? Because we're looking to the coming and glorious kingdom where righteousness rules. 
We don't need to fear the trials, persecutions, and the sufferings of this present life. Why? Because we are persuaded that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is coming in the kingdom of God. Later in Hebrews, the author will say that this hope, this hope that we all are partakers of, this hope is like an anchor for our souls. It keeps us from being cast adrift in the tumult of life's storms. So, living in the already, not yet, gives us a hope for tomorrow, but it also gives us a mission for today. Knowing that the king is on his throne, that the kingdom has been inaugurated, and that the fullness of the kingdom is coming, gives us also a mission for today. You know, there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament that I think illustrates this truth profoundly. In 2 Kings chapter 7, there's a moment in the history of Israel where Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, lays siege to Samaria. To lay siege to a city meant that you surrounded the city with military forces and then essentially you starved it of resources until the city became so weak, its inhabitants became so weak they couldn't defend themselves and either they waved the white flag and they gave up or you could come in and just wipe them out because they were so weak. Now during this siege it became such a crisis for resources that behind the city walls people were selling a donkey's head for 80 pieces of silver, and check this out, a quart of dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. Imagine that when you're like, hey mom, what's for dinner? Soup. It's brutal. The people inside the city are starving. Matter of fact, we are told in the previous chapter that in desperation for food, people had resorted to cannibalism of those that had died. One woman complained to the king that she had struck a deal with another woman within the city, that they would eat the remains of her son today, and when they ran out, they would eat the other woman's son the next day. And her complaint was that they had boiled her son and eaten him, but now the woman was unwilling to keep her part of the bargain so that they could eat her son. Brutal. The city is starving. However, God uses the prophet Elisha to tell the people that their troubles would be over within 24 hours. Now, at the entrance of the gate of the city are these four lepers. They're having a debate among themselves. You see, lepers survive on the charity of others, or even at least by eating the trash that others would throw out. But under these extreme circumstances... No one is throwing anything out, and these four lepers are now starving. So they, they're having this discussion with one another about what they're going to do. What's our next move? What should we do? If we just stay here, we're going to starve to death. And this is what they say in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. Why are we sitting here until we die? If, if we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So... Now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. 
So if we try and go in the city, we die. If we stay here, we die. We can go out to the Syrians and maybe they'll kill us, but maybe they'll take us as prisoners and they'll feed us and we'll live. Or we die there. We're going to die in all three places, so let's make a decision. At least here we have an opportunity. So resigning themselves, either dying by the hand of the Syrians or being kept and fed as prisoners of war, they decide quite literally to risk it for the biscuit and made their way into the camp of the Syrians. And what they discovered when they got there was nothing short of miraculous. The camps were still set up. All the supplies were still there. But there was not one Syrian anywhere to be found. You see, God had saved the Samaritans by causing the Syrians to be overcome with fear in the middle of the night. And they had fled, fearing that the the Samaritans had partnered with the Egyptians. And as a result, they left their camp behind, they left all their supplies behind, and this whole encampment is there, no people and everything that they need. So what did the lepers do? When they saw the victory of the the, uh, Syrians that, that God had given them, they raided the camp. They ate till they were full. They drank themselves silly. And then they started stockpiling stuff. They started grabbing silver and clothing and, and making trips out of the camp and, and stashing these riches somewhere else. And on one of those trips to haul off all of the treasures that they were gaining, they had a moment where they stopped and off in the distance they could see the city of Samaria. And it hits them. They realize. All at once, they realize. And they say in verse 9 of chapter 7, 2 Kings, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Folks, This is the mission that we have been given as those living in the already, not yet. The battle is over. The king is triumphant. The world is being brought under his rule and we know how history will be concluded. And we are already enjoying the benefits of this future and total deliverance. But there are people around us who are not. It is time to share the good news. We cannot make them leave the fortress of fear. We cannot make them taste and see that God has already given the victory. That is in their own choosing. But we cannot hide the good news. How can we not tell them? We're not doing right if we keep it to ourselves. So the author of Hebrews encourages his audience and us today that there is a future and coming kingdom where the enemy of God is defeated and and those who have put their trust in Christ will share the responsibilities of running this kingdom under the authority of Jesus. And this is meant to give those early Hebrew Christians a hope for tomorrow and a mission for today. And even more than that, it is meant to strengthen their attentiveness to the warning from the first part of the chapter, to pay much more 
attention to Jesus and to the gospel. And now this brings us to verse 9. The final thought for us to consider from our passage today. Christ's death brought life. In verse 9, the author says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Though we don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God implemented at the moment, we do know that God has put his redemptive plan in motion. How do we know that? Because Jesus, the Son of God, was made lower than the angels and became a son of Adam. Then Jesus lived as a son of Adam and rose again as the son of man and son of God. And here's what that means. The first human to have all enemies placed under his human feet is Jesus. And now because of this, Every person that comes to faith in Christ will also enjoy the benefits of Christ's victory over his enemies. You see how amazing that is? Keep track of the logic and the worldview that we've been discussing. Psalm 8 makes it clear that through that though mankind was made lower than the angels, God would crown mankind with glory and honor and put everything under his rule. And in Christ... We see that happening. Let's take a moment to think about some of the ways that the Bible describes the work of Jesus in his death because the author of Hebrews is focused on his death, that through his suffering death, he, after that he was crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Remember at the trial of Jesus before the big, uh, the big priests of his day. Remember Jesus made this remark in Luke chapter 22 verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple, the elders, who had come out against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but, now listen to this, key in on this verse, this hour belongs to you and to the power of of darkness. Here's what that means. Jesus saw his trial and his execution as a confrontation with the spiritual powers of darkness. Remember the divine council? Remember those that are ruling over the earth whom God will judge? It was not just about forgiveness of sin and man's rebellion. It was also about victory over the spiritual rulers of the world. It was a confrontation with the same rebellious spiritual beings that have been bucking against God's rule since the beginning. And it was also a confrontation with death itself. And in the cross, Jesus is dealing with all of those enemies all at once. This is why after the resurrection, Jesus would say to his, to his disciples in the Great Commission, he would say to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the beginning 
of everything being brought under the rule of God through the man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus is telling his disciples, he's claiming that he's building his kingdom of rulers through all the nations that are now being gathered under his authority. He's telling his disciples that this future coming kingdom is starting with them right now. And furthermore, Paul would later describe to the Colossian church what was happening at the cross. As Jesus suffered death for sin and defeated all of those spiritual authorities. Listen to what he writes to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There he deals with sin. Now listen to the next verse. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The defeat of those spiritual rulers. The disarming of the spiritual rulers. Paul would also describe Jesus' victory not only over sin and over the enemies of God, but over death itself. Matter of fact, would you turn there? Because I think this is so important for us to just read ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. I want us to see these words for ourselves. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. Brothers, excuse me, nevertheless, hold on, I'm in the wrong chapter. Verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those that have died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Jesus is defeating death in stages. This first defeat is in his own resurrection. And then when he comes in his full authority, he will also raise all those who have died. Some will be raised to everlasting life. Others will be raised to everlasting torment. And when they are raised, they will put on their eternal, physical, and spiritual bodies. And those new bodies are like Christ's body in the resurrection. They are both physical and spiritual. So Paul would go on to describe this later in the same chapter to the Corinthian church. Take a look at verse 34. Excuse me. Yes, verse 35. Thank you. 
But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another kind for birds, and another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars different from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is, is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Humans are like Adam. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven, those that have put their faith in Christ. Just as we have all borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. When Jesus died, he suffered death not just for himself, but for all those who would believe in him. And when he was raised from the dead, he demonstrated that death is also defeated. And now that, and now that sin, the spiritual rulers of the world, Satan and even death are defeated, he has been crowned with glory and taken his throne in heaven. And for those that have put their faith in this king, they will enjoy the benefits of his authority over all things. And even more than that, the Bible declares that he will administrate his authority through them. This is the promise of Psalm 8. The promise of Psalm 8 awaits those who believe in the king and his coming kingdom. So what? Why does this matter for the original audience? Why does this matter for us? Listen. The pressure of trials, persecution, and hardship have made these believers weary and wondering if they should go back to the old covenant way of relating to God. And the author is saying, why would you do that? Isn't what you have in Christ better? Doesn't he deliver better results? The conflict of the world, the flesh, and the spiritual rulers like Satan have caused these saints to feel defeated. And the author is saying, Christ has already shown that he is victorious. Cling to him and share in his victory. And fearing their own death, they've begun to wonder, is it worth it to suffer so much? But the author says to them, death has been defeated as well. Your death doesn't mark the, your defeat but it actually begins the ultimate victory that God has promised those who believe. This is a hope that anchors you through the storms of life. And Paul is saying the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 15. Check out verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death was sin. And the power of, the sin, of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Take heart, my friends. The world is not falling apart. Jesus is on the throne. The enemy and the spiritual wickedness and rulers of this world do not win. Jesus already demonstrated the enemy's defeat at the cross. And suffering, guys, is not forever. Eternal glory and joy is forever, and it awaits us because of Christ. Death does not win. Cancer does not win. Decay is not our eternal state. Death is just the beginning of an eternity where we see every last enemy placed under our feet. This is why Paul would write, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Why? Because Jesus is a superior messenger with a superior message who secures for you and for me a superior victory. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we do not always have eternity in our sight. And it is not easy for us to keep our focus on the things that are eternal because the weight of the world and of life circumstances are constantly pulling at us. This world feels so permanent. And yet in moments, when we attend the funeral of someone that we love or when we witness the reality of death, we are drawn to the fact that this life is not all there is. Like the psalmist, God, we would ask you today to teach us to number our days. Like the author of Hebrews, we would ask you today that by the Holy Spirit, you would anchor us to the superior victory that we have in Christ. That the message of the gospel is not simply that our past is dealt with and that we're forgiven, or that we have power in our present struggles, but that there is a future glory coming for each and every one of us. That we will share eternity with you. That in some way we will be used by you in an eternal way to bring glory for you, to you, throughout the ages.
God, anchor us to the hope that death does not get the final word, but that life eternal is our final estate. And may that carry us in every season, in every trial, in every tumult. Anchor us to your word. In the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.